Welcome back to Andy's Book Club. If you're new here, my name is Andy. This is a show where you go through an exciting book chapter by chapter on a weekly schedule, and every week I provide a recap of the chapter we're covering and add my commentary as we go along. If there is something that requires more explanation, I may reserve some time at the end of the show and discuss it in more detail. Uh, some of you may have seen some previous episodes of the show where we covered The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, as well as other books. Uh, this is a new thing that I'm trying where from now on the show will be audio only. Uh, it's a little easier for me to make and for me to continue to bring good content to you guys. And uh, it's not that important for you to see my face anyways. You can just feel free to put this in the background uh, if you want. Uh, so again, whether you're studying for a test, writing an essay, or like me, you're just super passionate about reading, this show is perfect for you. Uh, so I've chosen the new book that we'll be spending the next few months probably with, uh, which is Fire and Blood by George R. R. Martin. I don't know why I said that so happily. It's supposed to be like a serious topic. It's supposed to be like Fire and Blood. Uh, but anyways, uh, this is, of course, the book that inspired the famous hit HBO show, House of the Dragon. Now, the way that we're going to cover this book is slightly different compared to other books, since this is just one book out of an entire universe that George Martin created, uh, namely the Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones universe. So I'm assuming that uh, you are going to have at least a little bit of background knowledge already about the universe, uh, although it's not completely necessary, uh, but it does help if you've seen House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones, the show, because there's no way I can stop to explain uh, every little thing uh, of every backstory. Uh, however, again, it's not a deal breaker if you haven't seen either of the shows. This book is meant to be written like a history book, so it should be relatively easy to understand. It might even be a better experience because you're going to experience the Song of Ice and Fire for the first time. Uh, and quite frankly, if that's the case, I'm a little bit jealous of you because A Song of Ice and Fire is my favorite fiction series of all time. Uh, and yeah, I would love to experience it for the first time, but uh, I've already... Uh, read all the books. So anyways, without further ado, let's jump into it. Uh, the first chapter is called Aegon's Conquest, and it details the start of the Targaryen dynasty in Westeros, which began with Aegon Targaryen, who would eventually unite the realm and be known as Aegon the Conqueror. Now, Aegon is so crucial to the entire Game of Thrones Song of Ice and Fire world that the entire calendar system used in Westeros was divided into BC and AC, which stands for Before Conquest and After Conquest. So this is parallel to real life how our calendar is sorted between BC and AD, uh, which stands for Before Christ and Anno Domini, which is a Latin for the Year of Our Lord. So the point of this is to emphasize how Aegon is as important to the history of Westeros as Jesus is to our history in real life. And just like how in real life it was later shown that Jesus probably wasn't born in precisely 1 AD, the way that Westeros does their calendar is also not precise. Uh, Aegon's conquest obviously took longer than one day, and 1 AC is not the day that Aegon landed in Westeros. Uh, most of Aegon's conquest is estimated to have taken between 2 to 1 BC. Uh, so anyways, a little bit more about Aegon. Uh, so nowadays, when we speak of the Aegon, we call him Aegon the Conqueror, but obviously he wasn't born with this title. He earned it after he conquered Westeros. 
Uh, to really understand Aegon, we need to talk about the Targaryen family a bit more in general. So uh, the Targaryens were descended from Valerian blood. Uh, the story goes that the Valerians used to be simple sheep herders that were in this one particular region in the continent of Essos, uh, which is east of Westeros. So Essos equals east, Westeros equals west. The names make it easy to remember. So Essos is a completely different continent from the main sequence of the story. Uh, so the story really begins on Essos. Uh, so this particular region of Essos uh, had a lot of volcanoes. And around the volcanoes are the natural habitats of dragons. So the Valerians found these dragons, and whether it's through some magic or there's something in their blood or they've just been living in the same area for a long time, uh, they managed to tame and control the dragons. So uh, this, of course, was a huge boost to their entire civilization because they were the only ones that controlled dragons, uh, which enabled them to conquer all the surrounding civilizations. Uh, so it's a really unfair fight if you think about it. So keep in mind, we're at like medieval levels of technology, right? So bringing a dragon to fight people who only have swords and arrows, uh, that's like bringing a fighter jet to a knife fight. Uh, so... Yeah, the Valerians just pretty much wiped the floor with other rival civilizations with the help of dragons. Uh, and they founded Valeria, which is the greatest city that humanity's ever seen up until that point. Uh, now, the Valerians were really terrible people. Uh, they enslaved masses of people and forced the slaves to work to death in their mines. Uh, which were burning hot, and there's toxic fumes everywhere, so life expectancy was extremely low uh, in the mines for the slaves. Uh, so the entire empire was just kind of built on this slave labor and oppression, uh, and in a bit of perhaps poetic justice, or it might have been divine intervention, we don't know exactly what, uh, there was an event that came called the Doom of Valeria. Uh, or just refer to the Doom for short, uh, where the 14 volcanoes in and around Valeria, called the 14 Flames, all erupted at once. It basically wiped out any people and dragons uh, that were in and around the city, uh, so they were all just completely vaporized. I want to emphasize that the Doom was not just some run-of-the-mill volcanic eruption. So this was an event that had a magical component to it, uh, meaning that the destruction was so complete that uh, since the destruction of Valeria, even in the main sequence of the story, which takes place hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, any person who ventured into the ruins of Valeria did not return. Uh, not only was Valeria destroyed, the land itself became cursed, uh, or so, so some say, right? But we don't know for sure, but nobody who's ever gone there has ever came back, uh, except for a few, but we'll talk about you know, those people later. But yeah, most, like 99% of people did not survive a trip to Valeria, the ruins. Uh, so some say this is because the Valerians were researching some type of dark magic that went awry. Uh, we'll never know for sure exactly what happened. Uh, but anyways, it's not really important. Just know that th when the doom came, the entire civilization, the city was, was wiped out. Um, but Back to the Targaryens, though. Uh, rewinding a bit before the Doom, uh, the Targaryens were not the most powerful family in Valeria. 
uh, they were far from it, in fact. Uh, they were a minor family, and they were not that significant, and no one really cared or paid much attention to them. Uh, this was until 114 BC, though, uh, where the patriarch of the Targaryen family at the time, uh, named Aenar Targaryen, decided to sell the entire family's possessions and move to an island called Dragonstone, uh, which is off the coast of Westeros. Uh, it's the westernmost point uh, of the Tar of the Valerian settlements up until that point. Um, so the reason why uh, Aenar moved was because uh, of Aenar's daughter named Daenys Targaryen, uh, who had a dream that the doom would come. Uh, now, to a common person, this might seem like an overreaction to uproot your entire family because your daughter had a bad dream. Uh, but in this universe, uh, the universe of A Song of Ice and Fire, dreams are extremely important. And some people have what's called green dreams, which are dreams uh, where there are visions of the future. Uh, so some people have the ability to see the future, either through dreams or just through visions. And these people are called green seers. Uh, so in retrospect, it's clear that Danes was a green seer, uh, or at least a green dreamer. Uh, so she managed to also convince her father of this fact. Uh, however, this was, uh, of course, a baffling decision to other families of Laria who probably didn't believe that Danes could see the future. Uh, you have to understand that this was the equivalent of kind of our medieval times. Uh, so the words of a woman, especially a young girl, was not going to be taken seriously by the masses. Uh, so other Valerians ridiculed Einar for his decision uh, since they saw it as cowardice. They saw it as Einar just abandoning them, abandoning the greatest city on earth in exchange for a life in the middle of nowhere. However, uh, this seemingly inconsequential decision from the perspective of the Valerians anyways, uh, turned out to change the course of history entirely. Uh, so, uh, 12 years after Einar and his family left Valeria, the doom came and wiped everyone out. Except the Targaryens, of course, since they left, and they survived. Uh, now, Dragonstone is an interesting place. Uh, it's full of these jagged rock and, you know, volcanic rocks, and, you know, it's, it's very reminiscent of Valeria and the area where the dragons originated from, so it's, of course, a natural place for the Valerians to settle. Uh, it's also in a very strategic location. Uh, this is a part where if you have a map of Westeros handy, it's a great time to pull it out and take a look at it. Uh, if not, you can just listen to the description. But uh, Dragonstone is located off the eastern coast of Westeros at the mouth of this huge bay called Blackwater Bay. Uh, and this area is strategic as it controls shipping lanes used for trade. I mentioned earlier that the Targaryens were the only surviving descendants of Valeria because all the other Valerians got wiped out by the Doom. Uh, but this is not actually true, so I oversimplified back there. Uh, there were actually other families that were descended from the Valerians, namely the Valerions and the Celtigards. Uh, so the difference between these houses, though, is that out of these three, only the Targaryens had dragons. Uh, and the dragons is what really separates the Targaryens and makes them the main characters uh, and the most powerful compared to the other two houses. Uh, so the Valerians and the Celtigars were also descended from Valeria, but they were from lesser houses uh, of Valeria compared to even the Targaryens. So even though that the Targaryens, they were far from being the most powerful house in Valeria, at least they still had dragons. 
This is not to say, though, that the Valerians and the Celticars were weak. Uh, the Valerians made a name for themselves by having a huge navy and being the masters of the sea. Uh, the Valerian fleet will become extremely crucial to the Targaryens later on in history, uh, and the Celticars were uh, probably definitely the weakest out of the three, but they still carried a lot of influence uh, from their house seat on Claw Isle. Uh, so, anyways, uh, as I said, the Doom of Valeria happened 12 years after Aenar and his family moved to Dragonstone, and, you know, after that, for the better part of almost 100 years, uh, nothing much really happened. The Targaryens just were happy to just chill on Dragonstone, uh, but everything was set in motion for a big change uh, when Aegon was born in 27 BC. So, uh, you see, when Aegon was growing up, he was unsatisfied with the current state of affairs. Uh, he lamented that his family, the Targaryens, were so uninterested in Westeros and still paid most attention to what was happening in Essos in the East. Uh, so, to Aegon, the East, the old world, it felt kind of boring and stale, right? Uh, so Aegon set his sights on opportunities for glory and to make a name for himself in Westeros. Uh, so Aegon had two sisters, Rhaenys and Visenya, uh, and he married them both. Uh, now, to us, this seems kind of gross, uh, but I should note that this is not unusual since it is within Targaryen customs to marry within one's own family to quote-unquote keep the bloodlines pure. Uh, so recall that we don't know exactly what it is, but there's something uh, particular about having Targaryen and by extension Valerian blood uh, that allows a person to tame a dragon. So if a regular person tried to mount a dragon, the dragon would just breathe fire and burn that person to a crisp. Uh, the dragon would reject being ridden by someone who didn't have Valerian blood. Uh, so yes, although it's kind of gross, uh, incest does work really well on keeping the dragon magic in the family. Uh, what is perhaps a bit unusual is that although the Targaryens uh, were okay and loved incest, uh, they typically didn't commit polygamy, uh, meaning that it was somewhat unusual for Aegon to marry both of his sisters. Uh, although this might be another sign of things to come to foreshadow just how different Aegon will be from his predecessors. Anyways, uh, we'll talk about Rhaenys and Visenya in more detail later, uh, but the important thing to note is that they were all talented dragon riders, and of course Aegon himself as well, that includes Aegon. Uh, so Aegon's dragon, called Balerion the Black Dread, is by far the biggest and most badass dragon in the entire story. Uh, so, dragons also live for hundreds of years, uh, much longer than humans, and Balerion was born in Valeria before the Doom. Uh, so, although by this time it's been over a hundred years since the Doom, or almost a hundred years since the Doom, uh, Balerion is kind of the last living thing that we know of to have been in Valeria before the Doom. Uh, although the dragons Meraxes and Vagar written by Rhaenys and Visenya, respectively, are also extremely badass. If the name Vagar sounds familiar to those of you who watch House of the Dragon, uh, this is not a coincidence. It is the same Vagar. Again, dragons live much longer than humans, so Vagar is still around during the time of the show House of Dragon takes place in, uh, even though it takes place uh, over 100 years later. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
I should note the situation that's going on in Westeros at this moment, uh, right before Aegon's conquest. At this point, the continent was divided into seven kingdoms who were constantly at war with each other, and it's just a mess of politics. So the north, which is vast and extremely cold, was ruled by the Starks from their house seat of Winterfell. Uh, the very south of Westeros is the kingdom of Dorne, ruled by the Martells. The richest kingdom uh, was out in the west, ruled by the Lannisters from Casterly Rock. In the south of the continent, but still north of Dorne, uh, was the Reach, which is the most fertile farmland uh, of Westeros, ruled by House Gardner of Highgarden. The Vale, uh, which is this rocky and mountainous area in the northeast, was ruled by House Arryn. Uh, and uh, kind of in the middle of everything uh, were the Riverlands and the Iron Islands, ruled by Heron the Black. And to the south of Dragonstone was the Stormlands, which was ruled by King Argilac Dardarian. Uh, now, the opportunity for Aegon really started with a rivalry between King Heron the Black of the Riverlands and Iron Islands and King Argilac Dardarian of the Stormlands. Uh, so both kings were feared and extremely aggressive and hostile, so they constantly fought each other. Uh, now, Argilac came up with a plan. Uh, he was going to offer his daughter to marry Aegon and in turn drag the Targaryens into the conflict on his side uh, so he would have an ally in the war against Heron the Black. Uh, so Argilac set up this deal, right? He made it sound really nice. He was going to give Aegon some land as a dowry if he agreed to marry his daughter. Uh, but this was really a trap, and this was really uh, kind of Argilac pulling a little bit of a, of a clever trick. Uh, so Argilac offered, uh, the land that Argilac offered were currently held by Heron the Black. So essentially, he was giving lands that he didn't even have in a clear attempt to drag Aegon into the conflict. Uh, very sneaky. Um, but, of course, Aegon saw through the ploy. Uh, he rejected the marriage proposal, saying that he already had two wives and could not take a third, which I guess is a good point. However, I think this is just an excuse, because if he already broke tradition by taking two wives, what's the difference between taking a third, right? But, um, you know, instead, Aegon proposed that Argilac's daughter should marry Aegon's half-brother and childhood friend, Ori's Baratheon. But this proposal made Argilac very upset, to say the least. I think maybe there was some genuine miscommunication here. I don't think that Aegon planned to insult Argilac with his offer, but that's how uh, definitely Argilac saw it. He was upset that Aegon would even propose that his daughter marry a bastard. Uh, by the way, a bastard just means an illegitimate child. So, Ori's Baratheon was a bastard, a child conceived out of wedlock. And in this society, bastards are extremely looked down upon and considered dirty, dishonest, whatever negative connotation you can think of. So maybe under this context, it is somewhat understandable why Argilac would feel insulted. However, I think that Aegon was just trying to be nice. Aegon probably didn't think that much and was just like, hey, my brother Ori's is a good guy. Why don't you marry your daughter to him and he's going to treat her well? Uh, but anyways, uh, whether it's a misunderstanding or what, uh, Argilac was so angry at the mere suggestion of marrying his daughter to Ori's Baratheon uh, that he cut off the hands of Aegon's envoy and sent 
who was sent to deliver this message and then replied back with a note saying that these are the only hands your bastard shall have. Uh, taking someone's hand, by the way, means to marry someone by context. So instead of sending his daughter's hands, he cut off the hands of the envoy and sent it back to Aegon with, with a nasty note. Um, so in retrospect, this was a really bad idea. It essentially forced Aegon to declare war. Uh, according to the bro code of Westeros, harming an envoy was among the highest of dick moves. And if Aegon ever wants to command respect again, he would need to take action. Uh, and Argilac basically forced his hand on this. Uh, and I'm not sure if Argilac knew that Aegon had dragons, or maybe he did and he just didn't understand the full gravity of the situation because he's never fought a dragon before in combat. Uh, but now we're past the point of no return. Uh, so Aegon now called up all his allies in a process called calling the banners. That's what that means, essentially, calling all the people that swore fealty to you, uh, calling all the lesser houses, calling all your allies, calling the banners, assembled an army, him and his sister wives all mounted dragons, and now they've set their sights on the continent. The conquest of Westeros was about to begin. Next week, we'll continue to discuss Aegon's conquest on Westeros, and I hope you all enjoyed the story so far. I definitely had a lot of fun uh, making this episode for you guys, so thank you all for listening. We'll pick this back up next week.